Well, our scripture reading today is, uh, is Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read through it today. Um, we're going to be going through the genealogy of uh, the book of Matthew, genealogy of Jesus Christ here. And so I, I thought rather than trying to have someone come up here and uh, work through the, the names uh, that are in the genealogy in Matthew 1, I'm going to read through them here together. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the verse, first 17 verses. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we dig in here this morning, and you might be thinking, how in the world are you preaching a sermon from this? I will, though. Have you ever, you ever played the game where you try and guess the song by just listening to the first few, few notes or first few chords, first few lyrics that's played or, or sung in a song? Uh, it's kind of difficult to do, but there's some songs that have been written that just with the opening notes, just with the opening words, they're so recognizable that you just instantly know right away what song it is. Maybe a chord can be played and you're like, I know that song. Maybe it's the opening words to the, the, the Beatles song, Hey Jude, right? Or Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Or, or what about this one? Have you ever, what, what comes to mind when you hear these two notes right here? Two notes. And you're all giggling because you know what that is, right? Theme song to Jaws. Just two notes and you know the second you hear it. There's some things that have, been so, that have been written so masterfully and so creatively that the moment that you hear it, you know what it is and where it's going. So here in the opening words of Matthew's gospel, we're seeing from the very beginning not only what his gospel centers around, but really what all of Scripture centers around and points to. 
right? From the very first week of the series that we've been in the last four or five weeks, we've, we've, we've defined the Bible as God's unfolding story, and we've, we've said it this way, that, that it's one story about one God saving one people through one Savior. And since that first week, as we've journeyed through creation and fall and promise, that first week we're in Genesis 1 through 12, Scripture has, has been asking this question, who is he? Who is this Redeemer? Who is this Messiah who's going to save and redeem fallen, sinful humanity and restore it back to how it was meant to be? Now, the reason why we, we've titled this series God's Unfolding Story is because as, a, as the story of God progresses through the pages of Scripture, we're going to see more clearly God's redemptive plan to save a broken, rebellious people and to restore creation back to how it was meant to be, and with that, to dwell with his people forever. And yet, as the story unfolds, as we've seen now, Genesis all the way through Malachi, through the end of the, the, the prophetic books, we're, we're introduced to character after character, and we see each and every week that each person we're introduced to is not that Savior. It's not Adam from Genesis 1 and 2. It's not Noah that we are introduced to in, Noah, uh, in Genesis 6. It's not Abraham that we are introduced to in Genesis 12 or his son Isaac or Jacob. It's not Moses that we, we see in the book of Exodus. It's not even the nation of Israel. It's not Joshua who leads the people into the promised land. It's not Saul. It's not even King David. It's not any of the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. They were all key figures, but they were all but shadows of this promised Messiah who is still yet to come. There was still mystery surrounding that looming question, right? Who is this Redeemer, this Messiah, this Savior, and when is he going to be here? And so the entire Old Testament scriptures, we say this here often, but they're, they're pointing outside of themselves. And they're pointing to someone, they're pointing to something, reminding us of God's promise that was made all the way back to, to Adam and Eve, to us who read it in Genesis chapter 3, 15, when God said that there's coming someone as creation is unraveling, as the curse is, is coming upon all God's good world. God makes this promise, right, in Genesis 3 that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Someone's coming who's going to defeat death and defeat sin. Someone who, who is going to reverse the curse that's on creation and who's going to pave a way back for humanity to enter back into the garden, meaning back into the presence of God, which is where we're designed to be. This has been God's intention from the very beginning. He desires to dwell with his people, to be among them. And so we see that in the Garden of Eden. We saw it in God's leading of the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt. We saw it when he gives instructions for how the tabernacle is to be built, right? The, right in the midst of his people where he dwells with them. We see this in the sacrificial system, this desire for God to pave a way and make a way for, for humanity to be in his presence. See, all of Scripture is heading in that direction, this return to God's presence, but up to this point, it's, it's still incomplete, right? There's barriers that are hindering us from resting completely and fully in the presence of God. And that, that barrier is primarily, it's our sin, right? We're, we're, we have a, a dire problem that's in, in need of a, a solution. And as we've seen throughout the Old Testament journey now up to this point, we are not that solution, Right? We, are, we are not the answer to the deepest longings and needs of our soul. We cannot fix ourselves and fix what's wrong within us. 
And so the Old Testament ends with this, this longing and this yearning for this Redeemer to come, this Messiah, this Savior, this promised one who's going to come and fix what's wrong. And so we've now made it. We're at week five of a six-week series. We've made it through the Old Testament, and yet the Savior still remains unnamed at the end of the Old Testament scriptures. We still have the promise from God, and it's being fleshed out more and more, but it's still a promise in need of fulfillment. If you've got that, that series handout that we've handed out the last few weeks with you, notice where we've ended on the, on the timeline last week and where we're picking things up this week. And so the, the final prophet to, to speak to the people of God was a man named, named Malachi, probably around, around 430 to 425 B.C. So as he writes, God's people, they've, been, they've, they've returned from exile, returned from exile, but they've, they've once again begun to drift away from obedience to God. They've drifted away from his law, and so Malachi, as all the prophets would do, they would call the people to repentance, um, remind them of looming judgment that comes if they do not repent, and also the, the prophets would point outside, point to this future Redeemer, this future Messiah who's going to come and make things right once again. But then at the end, God just goes silent. At the end of Malachi, God goes silent. And so if, if you're seeing the, the, the timeline map, I think we might even have it up on the, on the screen, but, but you can see there, there's this moment where, where, where you, from one dot to the next dot, there's a long gap there, right? Nearly 400 years now has gone by between Malachi and now the gospel writers here. 400 years without hearing from God through a prophet. It, it's what we, what's called on that timeline the intertestamental period. It's the time between the Old and the New Testaments. And that's, that's a long time to not hear from God, especially if, if you've been waiting, as the Jewish people have been, for the promise to be fulfilled. 400 years. That's a long time. 400 years ago for us was year 1623. Right? The U.S. was still 153 years away from officially becoming a country. Right? 400 years, a long time. And so has, has God forgotten his promise has he ab- abandoned his people? Will creation be forever cursed? See, the gospel of Matthew, though, opens. It opens like the rising of the sun after a, a long, dark, and stormy night. I mean, can you picture that in, in your mind? Right? After you've made it through the darkest of nights, this, this gospel opens like a ray of light that begins to shine and begins to illuminate the sky. Because after 400 years of silence, after centuries of asking, who is this Messiah? Who is this Redeemer? Who is this Savior? We have, in verse 1, a name. We have a name. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Right? There's four Gospels. Four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word gospel means good news. That's what that word means. Good news. And so each Gospel... Is, is this accounting of the good news that's found in the person of Jesus. And so each gospel, though, has its own way of, of looking at the person of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have the different angle of looking at the person of Jesus. Now, be really careful here. Now, every gospel writer is singing the same song. They're singing the same song. But each gospel is singing what I would say is just, they're just singing a different harmony, a different part which comprises that same song. So, for example, we just finished as a church just about a month or so ago going through the Gospel of Mark. Well, Mark's Gospel is obviously about the life of Jesus, but Mark's 
Mark's emphasis is, is really on Jesus as a, a servant, a suffering servant, right? Mark 10, 40, 45, right? Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so Mark's emphasis is on Jesus as this suffering servant, the one who's going to have his heel struck, as you see or heard in Genesis chapter 3, but the one who will crush the head of the serpent. But Luke emphasizes Jesus as the son of man. It's a term Jesus uses of himself nearly 25 times in that gospel alone. And so Luke's emphasis is, is a little bit more on Jesus' humanity, his humanity, but also at the same time his authority to judge the world. So, so Luke's gospel is, is, is one of the other gospels. Only Matthew and Luke have genealogies in them. But Luke, he traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. Now why? Why did he go all the way back to Adam? Well, Luke is, is showing the connection of Jesus' humanity. Showing, no, Jesus is the greater Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. Where, a, where Adam represented humanity and failed as he rebelled against God, Jesus is going to step onto the scene as fully man. God come into a body, the incarnation of Jesus, and he will succeed. He will not fail. John emphasizes, though, Jesus as the Son of God. More of an emphasis on the divinity of Jesus, right? So John 1, he is the eternal word of God, present and active from eternity past. He's the very image of God the Father. But our focus today, Matthew's gospel, emphasizes what I would believe Jesus as the promised, eternal, sovereign king. You see, each gospel is, is singing the same song about who Jesus is, but through all four gospels, we get a, a fuller picture of, of who he is. He's fully God and yet fully man. And he's the eternal king. And he serves those who he came to redeem. We get a picture of who Jesus is, but Matthew is emphasizing the, the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He's the eternal reigning sovereign king. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the eternal king of kings. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the answer to Scripture's question. That's what we, that, that's what we see in these opening notes as they ring out, and they ring out with perfect clarity, so clear that it can't be missed for those who desire to see it. All that scripture up to this point has been pointing to the hope of humanity, the hope of, of all nations, the hope of, for redemption and healing, and they find its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew breaks this, this genealogy down into three units. And so we're going to explore each unit here together this morning. Um, now, now, I know for most of us, right, like even just hearing me read the genealogy, genealogy is for a lot of us here, if not most of us, aren't that exciting, right? As we read it, it's like it's just a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce, right? So can we just skip over the genealogy to get to the good stuff? Um, but don't skip. If you ever come across a genealogy, don't skip over them. Don't skip over them. Study them. Dig into them. They're incredibly, incredibly important. Not just historically, but they're, they're incredibly valuable theologically. Matthew here is telling a story. And he, he's revealing a, a profound theological truth that's transformative. And, and one in which is, it's revealing Jesus for who he is. We see who Jesus is through this genealogy. Now, we've touched on, on the first verse briefly, but let's look at it again just because it sets the stage for what comes after in it. 
That first verse ties together in just one sentence really all the promises that are found in the Old Testament. So, so Matthew begins his gospel with this, the book, all right, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? That's not his last name. Christ is, is a title. It's a title. It's the Greek word Christos, which means an anointed one, right? It's the, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach, right, which means Messiah, right? That, that term, that concept is found throughout the Old Testament, all right, so with just even this title, Matthew is saying Jesus is the anointed one of God. He is the, the Mashiach, the Messiah. He's the Savior of mankind. He's the promise from Genesis 3.15. He is the one who will crush the serpent's head. He is the one who's going to restore creation back to how it was meant to be. But, but Matthew goes on, and he begins to add to the, the validity of who Jesus is as the Christ in this introduction. He is the son of David. He's the son of, of Abraham. Matthew is making a bold statement here. He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy and all of God's promises. Now, how does this gene- genealogy then reveal that statement to be true? Well, let's look at each, each unit, right? Let's look at the first unit of names found in verses 2 through 6. Now, again, like I said, he breaks these down into three units of 14 names each. That's what verse 17 says. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David. There were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon. And then there were 14 generations from the, this return from exile from Babylon to the birth of Jesus. Now, we're not going to look at each name uh, in case you're nervous, but rather what we're going to do is we're going to look at the unit we're going to look at the unit and what it's revealing about Jesus. And so in the first few verses, verses 2 through 6, he begins with Abraham and traces that line to, to King David. Now, Luke began with Adam. Why does Matthew begin with Abraham? It's very intentional. It's very intentional because Matthew has a point he's trying to bring across to his readers. If you remember from, from week one of our series, a few weeks ago, we, we, we hit Genesis 12 toward the end of that sermon. And in Genesis 12, a, a promise is given to a, by God to a man named Abram. And so just to remind us here, that, that covenant, that promise God enters into with Abram is this. It says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so God promises Abram three things here in in Genesis 12. First thing he promises is that he's going to form a covenant people. Right, so remember again what the fall did. It, it, it fractured um, relationship between man and God, right? So there's, there's no longer a, a, a communal aspect of, of God and man living and dwelling together in perfect harmony. So what's God do with Abraham? He says, okay, I'm, re, I'm starting this process of restoration. I'm going to now, through you, I'm going to form a covenant people. Now, this here, as we move forward through the Old Testament, this is the nation of Israel. 
right? He's going to make them, he says, into a great nation. So that's one promise that he's making here. He's going to form this covenant people. And remember, everything here is this shadow and a picture pointing outside of itself to what ultimately will be fulfilled through the person of Christ. But here, I'm going to make a covenant people. That's Israel. Second thing he promises, though, is that he's going to, to give them, the nation of Israel here, give them a promised inheritance, right? A promised inheritance on earth. So again, if you recall maybe back to week two, when God delivers Israel from, from, from slavery in Egypt, and then after years of wandering in the wilderness because of their lack of faith, right? God, God comes to them and says, listen, uh, because of your lack of trust and faith in me, you're going to wander for the next 40 years, and it's going to be your children, the next generation though, but they will enter into, God promises, this promised land. This place where you will dwell and will establish this, this, this place for you to live underneath my reign and rule, right? So, so he's going to form a covenant people. He's going to give them a promised inheritance on earth. And the third thing he promises here with, with Abram is he's going to use Israel to accomplish a, a global purpose, right? He's like through them, God says, all families, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. That, that Israel there, he's calling saying, I, I'm calling them to be that light, Here's what it looks like to live underneath my good reign and rule, right? And as you submit to, to my reign and rule and, and you walk in obedience, you're going to be this light to the surrounding nations and it's going to draw them to me, right? And so those are the three things that, that we see in Genesis 12. This promise, this covenant that God makes, though, with Abram, is, it's reiterated again in Genesis 15. Two chapters later then, in chapter 17, Abram's name is changed to Abraham, which is probably what we're most familiar with, Abraham. And it was changed because Abraham means the father of many. He was going to be the father of many nations. And it's with that promise in Genesis 17 that God says to Abraham that I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. It's the first, it's the first mention of kings coming from the line of Abraham. So now we're hearing that kings and nations are to come through Abraham. So royalty is coming from his line. So now, if you're in, back in Matthew, if you begin to follow the genealogy, you're going to see this continuation of this promise as it begins to narrow in on who this royal figure would be and who it's going to come through. All right, so, so Abraham fathers Isaac, and, and Isaac fathers Jacob, who then fathers Judah. Now, with Jacob and Judah, we, we see a, a more narrowed promise of this royal line. If, if you recall in the book of Genesis, Jacob had 12 sons, right? Had 12 sons. Judah was one of them. So, so the question at this point becomes, okay, if, if you're in that part of the story, which son is this royal line coming from? And so we find out in Genesis chapter 49 when, when Jacob says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So here's why Matthew is not mentioning any of the other sons of Jacob, but only now Judah. Why? Because royalty is coming through that line. The scepter is not going to depart from Judah. So that's why we have Judah's name mentioned in this genealogy. Because through his line, this eternal king would come and redeem broken humanity, would fulfill the promise of God that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12. So what's this unit, verses 2 through 6, what's this unit reveal about Jesus? I would say it this way. That's revealing that Jesus is the fulfilled promise and blessing for all peoples. He is the fulfilled promise and blessing for all people. That's what Matthew is getting across here. Jesus is going to form a new covenant people. 
church. Jesus is going to establish his eternal kingdom, right? What's the first thing Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 when he steps onto the scene in, in his ministry? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? Jesus steps onto the scene and says, the kingdom is in your midst, right? It's here. I'm bringing it. Right? And so Jesus is, is the one who's establishing this eternal kingdom where, that, where this new people that he's redeeming and reconciling is going to dwell with him. And now it's going to be through the church that we live. We're outposts of this kingdom, that we live under this good reign and rule of Jesus, that people then from every nation and tribe and language are drawn to him. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the son of Abraham. But the genealogy continues, right? He's also the son of David. So it's another key figure in the Old Testament. And that's what the second unit uh, of names reveals, starting with the last part of verse 6 all the way through verse 11. We get a list of kings, right? Some were good, most weren't. David was, was the great king of Israel. He was a worshiper, and he was a lover of God. And it was under David's reign that God's people and the king of Israel, it, it, it was flourishing, And so in connecting Jesus now to David, Matthew is revealing Jesus' royal identity. That like David, who is a great earthly king, Jesus is the greater David. Now now it's so important for us to know the Old Testament because knowing the Old Testament is going to bring to life a greater understanding of the new. And so with that, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is, is reigning and and David desires to build a, a grand temple for God, right, so that God would dwell with his people. David desired for God to be here with his people. So he says, God, I want to build you this, this temple. But God speaks to David and says, listen, it's, it's, you're not going to be the one. You're not going to be the one who's going to build this temple for me. But instead, it's going to be your son, Solomon. He's going to build it. But in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David as well, just as he made a promise to Abraham. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, God speaks to David and says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning, David, there's coming a day when your reign will come to an end and you're going to go into the grave, right? But then he says, Listen, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in 2 Samuel 7, David desires to to build a temple, right? Uh, Desires for God to dwell with his people, which is why uh, as the king of Israel is established and flourishing, he wants to build this place for for God to dwell. God says, no, it's going to be your son who's going to do this, right? But, But through you, though, David, you will one day pass away. Through you, I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom. This is the promise. I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom through your line with an eternal king who's going to reign over my people, which comprise not just the nation of Israel, but as I said to Abraham, it's going to comprise all nations, all all people. And and he says, and this king is going to come from your line. He's going to come from you, and he's going to reign forever. You're going to the grave. You're a shadow, David, of of one who's coming who's greater. I, I can't emphasize enough how huge this promise was for the Jewish people. They, they wanted this great king, right? The one who would reign and triumph over their enemies. 
Unfortunately, the Jewish people misunderstood this so much. So even with Jesus, they're trying to force him onto this, this, this earthly throne. Jesus kept saying, no, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a heavenly kingdom. They misunderstood it, but the Jewish people were longing for this, this fulfillment of this promise. When will this eternal king come? It was a promise that, that rang out throughout the Old Testament. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, what do we hear Isaiah say? And prophesy, pointing outside of itself, right? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David. There's he's connecting it back to 2 Samuel 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it. And to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah prophesies that the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Right? There's that connection. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Let me give you one more, one more prophet. Ezekiel 37 says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I, that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. Do you hear the, the promises from Genesis being found here? They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Each of these passages assume this continuation of God's promised king. But, but in that last passage in Ezekiel, it's important to know the context behind it. At, at the time Ezekiel wrote that, David had long been dead. But he's writing as if David's alive, isn't he? The, the people of God, in, in, as Ezekiel writes, they're in exile. They're in captivity. They're not in Jerusalem. The temple of God, in fact, had, had been destroyed. So, so to them, as they were hearing this from Ezekiel, it would seem to them in that moment like the promises of God have failed. It would feel to them as though, have, have we been abandoned by God? And it, Ezekiel picks right back up with the promise of a king from David's line who, who will restore people back to God. Ezekiel is saying God's promises do not fail trust him. This covenant is an everlasting covenant. And so the question the people are, are asking then here still is, who? Who is he? When's he coming? And Matthew here, as, as this ray of light starts to pierce through the darkness, says, it's Jesus, son of David. This is not just a, a listing of names. This is an official announcement of the promised king. Do you see how there's just so much theology packed into this genealogy? And so in this second unit of names, how is Jesus revealed? I would say he's revealed as the sovereign king reigning over an eternal kingdom. He's the sovereign king reigning over an eternal kingdom. Which takes us into our final unit of names found in verses 12 through 16. This section here takes place... It's, it's an overlap between a little bit of the Old Testament and this intertestamental period, a, a time when God was silent. Now, there's a, there's a few names, specifically in verse 12, that are mentioned, that are mentioned in Scripture as, 
as the Jewish people were returning back from exile and, and captivity. But for the most part, those last grouping of names, there's not much known about them until we get to Joseph and Mary and ultimately Jesus. But, but that doesn't mean that this, this section of names is not important. In fact, what I believe is being revealed here about Jesus is that this last point is he's the hope for the hopeless. He's the hope for the hopeless. That even in times of, of silence, when it feels as if God is distant, he's not. I mean, what verses 12 through 16 show us is that God is actively at work at all times, even when we are unaware of it, even in the silence, so to speak. He's working. What's taking place here? There's silence. No prophet is speaking for God, but what the line continues. God's moving. God's moving. What we heard at the beginning of our service, Galatians 4, right? When the fullness of time had come, God never backed up. He is always at work, even if we're unaware of it. And so as we think through this today, what, what's, our, what's our takeaway? If we just back up a bit, a little bit from this genealogy, and look at it from a distance, what do we, what do we see? Well, like I come to a close here this morning. I want to give you four quick things, and then, and then we'll be done. Four quick things just to take away from it. Number one would be just the wonder of God's saving grace. The wonder of God's saving grace. I don't think we can rightly walk away from this text without being in awe of God's love to redeem broken, sinful rebels. I mean, this list of names that we heard read, aside from Jesus, is a who's who list of sinful, rebellious creatures. Abraham and David as well. Now, David was an adulterer. Many kings even listed here hated God. And and they actually actively sought to lead the nation away from him. Rahab was mentioned. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a a Moabite, a people known for their sexual immorality. It's it's a list of the the morally outcast. And listen, we're no better, right? So we've been adopted into the family of God. The genealogy, that line continues as God now is we're on this side of the redemption of Christ and he's drawing us and adopting us into his family. So there's this new genealogy, new list of names connected with this group here. And what? We're a who's who list of rebellious, broken creatures who have been saved by God's grace. The same as this group here was saved by the grace of God. We cannot walk away from this without being in awe and, and just see the wonder of God's saving grace. A second takeaway is that God's grace extends to the nations. God's grace extends to the nations. God's mission is a global mission. The names listed here uh, include people from different ethnic groups. Uh, Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth, they, they, were, uh, they were Gentile women. Now, Bathsheba may have been an Israelite, but, but she's even mentioned here as the wife of Uriah. Uriah was a Hittite, not an Israelite. Now, all this to say that God's mission is a global mission. Remember Genesis 12. You're going to be a blessing to all nations. All families of the earth will be blessed through you. So God's mission is a global mission with a global purpose to redeem and reconcile people from every nation, every tribe, every language, that the church of Jesus Christ is to be this beautiful mosaic of people from all ethnicities who are bound and joined together through one name, Jesus which means that as a church, we must be about seeing the gospel expand to all corners of the earth. That, that the church fails in its mission when we just build our little kingdom here. 
We fail the mission of God. Matthew 28 begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It ends with the Great Commission, right? The church has now been redeemed and been brought together, been ransomed, and Jesus sends them. Go, make disciples of all nations, all people groups. We must be about that. That is the mission of God. Therefore, it is our mission as his redeemed sons and daughters. We must be about planting churches where there, where there is need so that the gospel will advance and God's mission be accomplished. The third takeaway is that even in seasons of silence, God is active. Even in seasons of silence, God is active. Now, how do we know this to be true? Look to the cross of Christ. Look to the cross of Christ, and that's where you find and know that, that even in seasons of silence, perceived seasons of silence even maybe, God is at work. See, on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I, through faith in him, never will be. You are not forsaken if you are a son and daughter of God. He was forsaken so we could be accepted. In those seasons of silence, when it feels as if our prayers are not being heard, when it feels as if you are in the wilderness or are in exile, you look to Christ. You look to Jesus who came to redeem you and ransom you back to God the Father. You are his son. You are his daughter, cherished, beloved. Know that through Jesus and because of Jesus, you are accepted. And we look to God's word, right? If you want to hear God speak to you, you look to God's word. I think a lot of times we want this kind of mystical, I want to I hear it internally, God speaking. And when, when we don't hear that, it's like, oh, where is he? And like we have literally right here the words of God. Like he is not silent. He is, he is very loudly proclaiming who he is and who you are in him. And so you look to God's word where God speaks loudly and boldly and compassionately and graciously and then hold fast to God's promises because lastly, our fourth takeaway is that God always delivers. What we see in Christ is that God never fails. He reigns and rules over his creation. Jesus is the eternal king who first came in a spirit of humility and in the weakness of human frailty, but he came to deliver us from sin's dominion now we await, this is where we'll go next week for our final week together with this series. But next week we look to the, the, the awaiting of the, the return of this great king who will come not in a spirit of humility and weakness, but in a spirit of power and authority to put death to death where we will one day dwell with our God forever and ever. See, that's the future promise that we await, the return of Christ to, to, to consummate that which he began at the cross and in his resurrection. And if we've seen anything up to this point about who God is up to this point, it's that God always delivers on his promises. See, this genealogy is much more than a simple list of names for a historical record. It presents Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God who reigns and who rules over all creation. It presents Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises and, and a promise of a future kingdom with a good, gracious, and kind reigning king. Jesus is the central figure of all of Scripture and of all of history. So let us then center our lives around him for our good, for his glory.